Hi, uh, welcome to the Brooks Online Gathering today. My name is Muchi Cable. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We exist to grow a people from all people, passionate for God. Uh, we're super excited that you would join us in this way. If this is your first time uh, in the chat, wherever you're watching from, YouTube or Facebook, uh, there's a link that we want you to fill out so that we can connect you to the life of the church and we can connect with you, see what God is doing in your world at this moment. Um, in fact, uh, if you want to be part of groups and the groups that are going on, there's also this link in there as well uh, as we've tried to pivot and adjust to make sure that we can still be relationally connected even if we're socially distanced. Uh, and lastly, if, if, you, if you have kids, uh, there's content for you from our children's ministry, Canvas. The heartbeat of our children's ministry is really this idea that your life is a portrait and you could paint something beautiful. The truth of the Imago Day that we were made in the image of God and we have inherent dignity, we have inherent design, and we're made for relationship. And that begins when we're born. And so uh, there's, there's content for your kids as well. And, and afterwards, this week, our children's director, as well as their, our leadership team within Canvas, is constantly sending out content. And so click on this link and so that they could be engaged as well in this moment. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Numbers. Numbers is where we're going to be, specifically chapter 13 and 14. It's that part of the Bible that we tend not to engage with. So we're going to brush and wipe off the dust today. Uh, we're in the midst of our series, Hide and Seek. And the reason we started this series is because we said that we're in a unique moment where it seems like there's an increase or uptick of margin, but there's also this increase in this uptick of sensitivity regarding meaning. So we have a little bit more space and we're a little bit more sensitive to the world around us and the world inside of us. And we're like, man, that is a perfect opportunity to explore God and to explore relationship with him no matter where we are on the journey that we could be far away in our minds or we could be in this pit stop place or we could be in a full-on sprint but wherever we are we can engage and the way that we want to engage is we want to look at the reality of our tendencies to not engage with God but to actually lean away from him and so we want to look at the various ways in which we run and hide, as well as the various ways in which God comes and pursues us. So even last week, what we did is we, we essentially established a baseline for all of our running, all of our hiding, and how shame works itself out in our hearts and causes us to recoil or to lean away from God. But we also looked at the baseline of all of God's pursuits of us, how they're bathed with relationship and grace. He comes. And he deals with what's broken, compassionately confronts, but he does it to move us close in relationship. God comes and pursues. He's a God who pursues. Uh, for the next few weeks, what we're going to see is we're going we're to unpack the variety of ways that we actually run and hide escapist behaviors, if you will. And I think it's appropriate to, to start with, with this one that we, we tend to have expectations in life and expectations in relationships. In fact, one of, my, one of my favorite movies, some of you know this, is Dodgeball. You could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball. Uh, Vince Vaughn in his prime. And there's that one scene in that movie where, where essentially he makes this statement where he likes to go through life with low expectations. That way he's never really disappointed and he's always pleased. And essentially that's a perspective. And, it, and it's it's one where we say we have no expectations, but it's really just super low expectations. We actually don't believe well. We, we operate from a negative vantage point. 
Now, the opposite of that is kind of what I mentioned a few weeks ago, which is almost that Olaf mentality, that idealism, that naivete, if you will, where it's like just ooh pretty. I'm just, I'm just cruising through life on cloud nine, not really touched by the sobriety that life brings. Those are really two extremes, though. And we tend to swing the pendulum either way and kind of operate in the middle sometimes, but we lean one particular way. But at the end of every extreme is disappointment. At the end of both extremes are paths of disappointment. And what, what we should look for, what we should long for is not necessarily low expectations or high expectations that are unrealistic, but accurate expectations. All expectations are shaped by beliefs and experiences. And what, what tends to happen is with God, we have low expectations. We have experiences and beliefs that say we can go through life not believing God for anything. We have a pessimistic vantage point with God. And that's, that's really a way of hiding and running. Because if I could go through life not having to believe God for anything, I could go through life without having to engage him at all, wherever I am on my journey. And yes, some of us tend to lean at some ends of the extreme. So some of us have a more cynical or pessimistic disposition. And so you're like, yeah, that's me all day. And, and the ones who don't lean that way, you're like, man, those people. But the reality is you don't have to be a pessimist to have pessimistic perspectives. In fact, perspectives that are pessimistic are often produced, again, by dis disappoint experiences and beliefs that have led to disappointment. And some of us, even as I was talking, you're like, oh, for sure. I feel like God has disappointed me big time. And I, I don't want to invalidate per se as much as to say, if you've felt that ever or if you're feeling that now, that's worth exploration. So is it that God has disappointed us or have we had a, a low or high, some unrealistic expectation of him. We've turned a plan or desire into, in our hearts into a promise that he's made and we've held him to it. In other words, we've created our own God and that God has failed us and disappointed us. By the way, that God we've created is often ourselves. And so is it that God has brought the disappointment or is it the God we've made has brought the disappointment? Or have we been disappointed by people and we've, we've now attached the disappointment people bring horizontally to the vertical way that we relate to God? If we explore, we'll see that that's probably the case. Someone has failed us or the God that we've made has failed us and has created this paradigm of pessimism in the relationship. But pessimism is poison to spiritual vitality. And the scriptures offer us a counter, a courageous counter, a courageous alternative to, to not lean into pessimistic perspectives, vantage points of negativity in how we relate to God causing us to hide but to, to lean into courage and risk and belief, to dare, if you will, and experience fruitful, flourishing relationship as a result of it. 
enter Numbers 13 and 14. They, they're turning points in the life of the people of God. But they're also a picture of what happens in our hearts as well. So the rest of our time is going to be looking at this picture, this profound story, and, and seeing what are the ways and even the results of pervasive pessimism at work in a heart. What are the results of pessimism working in a heart? What's a courageous alternative that's offered? And can we see the beauty of God in the midst of both? That's the rest of our time. Numbers 13 and 14. It's a lot to cover. It's a really huge chunk. I'm going to read it all the way through. It's going to take about two and a half minutes. Don't turn away. But I want to read it so that we could step into the atmosphere that this text is offering us. Read with me. Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 25. It reads like this. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all of the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Look how big this is. (laughs) However... The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up with him, for they are stronger than we. We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we are. Verse 32 So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword, our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
that Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, said, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. For they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Man. Such a rich story. The book of Numbers is this interplay between relationship with God, where we are stepping in with faith and those parts of the relationship where we're stepping away with fear, where we're rebelling, where God is pursuing, God is judging, God is producing mercy. It's this glorious interplay. It's not a bird's eye view distant. It's a eye level view of the heart of humanity and the heart of God. Numbers is so rich. Please don't skip over it. Don't skip over stuff in the Bible. There's so much truth and richness there if we look hard enough or if we look at all, quite honestly. But in this particular story, I mean, their pessimism is pervasive and it's pretty much out there. It's out in front. There's some obvious ways that pessimism is at work. Don't want to dismiss those. But there's some more subtle ways that pessimism is at work, some subtle ways that are still significant. Notice how it starts off after 40 days. It it gives them a time frame of how long they were actually in the land. Moses sent them out. They stayed for 40 days engaging in the land. And that that matters because this is interesting. It, the text doesn't necessarily say when this seed of pessimism, this negative vantage point shaping how they related to God and the world around them grew into this tree that would cast a shadow over them. It doesn't say where that seed started or even where it flourished. But what we see at the end is that there's two different responses, which means we can interpret what's actually happening in the beginning. We can interpret what's happening in the middle. We can interpret what's happening over the course of 40 days. What's not happening is that they aren't filling their hearts with the promises of God. They're not filling their hearts with an accurate picture of who God is. They're not saying to themselves, oh my goodness, look at how massive these fruits are. What fertilizer are they using? They're not saying to themselves, guys, do you remember when our grandfather and our fathers used to tell the stories of of God walking with Abraham and and making this promise? Do you remember how, how, how they and we cried out in slavery, oppressed, asking God to deliver us? 
and how God answered, and he didn't just say, I'm going to free you, but he says, I'm going to bring you to a place of flourishing, this promised land. Do you, do you remember those days? And look where we are. Look what we get to experience. Man, look how faithful God is to, to continue to pull us to this place, even though we were leaning and pulling away from him. That's not what's flooding their hearts. What's flooding their hearts isn't a picture of the promise of God. What's flooding their hearts is a picture of the opposition and the problems around them. It's these people through whom they seem like grasshoppers. It's these fortified cities that seem too strong for God to overcome. What's flooding their heart is greater fear. Pessimism is at work. Pessimism is rooted in their hearts. And when pessimism is rooted in our hearts, time becomes a tool that we waste with worry. When pessimism is rooted and ruling our hearts, time becomes a tool that we waste with worry. Time is a tool. You know that, right? We, we know that. We... <laughs> We say some stuff that's, that's poetic, it's just not true. <laughs> so we'll say like time heals all wounds, not necessarily. Time could heal a heart or it could harden a heart. It's just a tool that we use as we please. We could use it foolishly or we could use it wisely. We could use it well or we could waste it. And in, in, this, in this scenario, and what happens for us is that when pessimism rules, we waste it with worry. The hearts weren't flooded with pictures of who God were. They weren't being dominated by the beauty of who God was. They were being dominated by the world around them. And as a result, this relationship was becoming poisoned. Pessimism is poison. But it's not just poison. It's not just poison in the soul. It's a plague that spreads in other relationships. Notice what took place. They brought the report to the people, and the people wept all night. Verse, verse 2 says, Oh, that, that we would have died in the land of Egypt. Oh, that we would have died in this wilderness. You see this mass hysteria. It spread all throughout the community. Because that's what it does. You know, you know, we like to say stuff like misery loves company. I don't know who started saying that. But man, it's true that pessimism becomes that thing that we, we grab onto. And, and we have this community that puts a ceiling on what God could do. But what's, what's fascinating is not just the mass hysteria that's now taking place. It's the paradigm that's being exposed by their words. Would we have died in Egypt? That would have been better. Would we have died in the wilderness? That would have been nice. In fact, let's actually go back to the place we wish we would have died in and let's choose new leaders to take us there. They're exposing a, a paradigm at work in the heart of everybody, but pessimism starts to accelerate, if you will. It's, it's the short leash paradigm. Let, let me explain like this. Cooking is restful for me. 
Uh, I, I love cooking, especially grilling. Although in this season, I'm trying to cut down on red meat. Uh, <laughs> the Texas part of my soul is like challenging me and rebuking me. It's like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? But nevertheless, cooking, grilling, it's how I rest. Get me a glass of grape juice, some kombucha, some water. I'm good to go out there, light my tiki torch. It's a great environment, restful. In fact, a friend of mine got me a, a big green egg, which is like the Maserati of grills, if you're familiar with grill culture. And so it's a gift that keeps on giving. So I just, I just put something in there, sit back, enjoy. Restful moment. Well, I'm not the only one in our family who loves cooking. My middle child, my, my middle daughter, she loves cooking. She loves cooking, she loves baking. Like, I mean, she loves shows like Nailed It, like Cake Boss. I mean, it's like crack for her. I mean, even last year she had a, a Nailed It birthday party because she just loves it. And so she loves it, I love it. You know what I did? I was like, let me just invite you into my part of this love affair with cooking. And so I'd bring her out there to help me grill and, you know, and I'd be like, you know what? How about you help season the meat? And so I'd give her a task. I'd empower her, if you will. I'd entrust her, if you will. And, and she would season the meat. But what I started noticing early on is that she wasn't doing things the way I wanted it done. <laughs> and she wasn't doing it in the time frame that I wanted it done. And so what ended up happening early on, shameful to say, is I would be like, you know, how about I take that from you and you go help your mom? Or you know what? Actually, go watch Nailed It. Go, go watch Nailed It, girl. It's a Netflix day. You're free. Essentially, because she wasn't operating on my pace with my expectations, I took control back. I took the rein back. She was operating on a short leash. Now, she didn't know it, but she was. And we do that with people. And people often don't know it. They don't know it's fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, and I cancel you for the rest of my life, defriended. They don't know that, but we do it. We, we operate with a short leash paradigm because in one way, it's a way that we try to protect our hearts from pain and disappointment. But we do it with God. You know what, God? Either you're incompetent, insensitive, incapable, too demanding, taking your sweet time, or really not capable of of equally caring about the world, yet uniquely caring about me. So I need to take the reins back of my present and future. Get out the way. And we, we do that in a short leash way. And pessimism accelerates it. And past disappointment accelerates it. And that's what they did. That's the paradigm that they're exposing. What? You mean there's actually giants in here? Oh, so it's not raindrops and roses? All right, God, clearly you don't have our best interest in mind. Give me back the reins. We're going back to Egypt. In fact, this leader that you gave us, Moses, he's in the way as well. Get out the way. And they had to secure their own future because God's hands weren't trustworthy enough to do it. What's taking place is the what ifs are overpowering but God. And when what ifs overpower but God, faith erodes 
and sin is lurking around the corner. Get out the way, God. I got this. Active. Or I'm just not even going to go to you at all. Still saying, I got this. Still active. Now that seems extreme. Some of us are like, I would never dare. I, I would never dare fix my lips to say it. But just because we don't say it with our lips doesn't mean we don't do it in our hearts. And one of the ways that I've, I've seen this play out in the Christian life is because, you know, Christians, we could hide twisted, distorted aspects of our heart with niceties. But one of the ways I've, I've seen this play out is through prayer. You see, prayer is a portrait of the heart. It reveals what I believe about the relationship I have with God. And, and if you enter into most Christian circles, what we do is we hedge our bets in prayer. So we'll say stuff like, God can you, but, you know, do your will, your will be done. And, it's, and, and, and not that that's not true, but we do it so that we don't have to face the reality of potential risk and disappointment. But man, when those what ifs, what if, what if we are called to singleness? What if God does allow someone close to me to die? Because God allowing isn't God approving, not synonymous. What if I don't? When we, when we allow the what ifs, as valid as they may be, as frightening as they may be, to overpower the but God. But what, God, what if God does come in and, and, and supply me with this glorious relationship that I could grow with somebody? What if God does step in and miraculously heal and, and care for this person that is, that is sick? What if God can come in and protect and secure? When we allow the what ifs to overpower but gods, faith erodes and sin is lurking around the corner. But there's an alternative that's offered. Notice, notice the alternative that's offered. Look at the words that Joshua is using. Verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. So here's what's interesting. He is not operating in a fantasy world. Joshua knows the grumbling that's taken place as they were walking to this point. Joshua knows a few chapters earlier this idea of Kabroth Hatava, the graveyard of craving, where because of their gross craving, their gross desires, they went away from God. God stepped in with judgment and said, your desires should orient around me. He knows fully well that their fear is not just in their hearts, but on their lips. Let's go back. Yet, in view of what he knows, he's not denying reality. He's displaying a courageous alternative, which is daring to believe. You see, daring to believe isn't a denial of reality. It's an embracing of risk. 90s, baby. I grew up on classic 90s. I mean, first of all, Classic 90s, Nick, legendary. Yeah, I mean, you had all that. Kenan and Kel, Rugrats. 
hats. You know what I mean? Salute your shorts. Are you afraid of the dark? My brother and me, Clarissa, explain. legendary. But there was, there was one show that really captured the 90s and it was Double Dare with Mark Summers. And essentially it had this idea where you had these two teams going back and they would answer questions and you would get to the point where you'd be like, well, I dare you, well, I double dare you. And that resonated with me because that really like, <laughs> that really shaped my like experience in school. Like there's a lot of stories of pain <laughs> and spankings at the end of I dared you. But there's also some stories of excitement and joy at the end of I dare you. Because essentially a dare is an invitation to risk. That's, that's all it is. It's, it's an invitation to risk. And, and daring to believe, it's not denying reality. It's embracing risk. And it's embracing risk that's not rooted in idealism. It's risk that's rooted in an accurate picture of God. There's this word or phrase that has collected dust in Christian history. It's called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something potent and profound, and it's what's pulling Joshua forward. The fear of the Lord it's pulling him away from the denial of reality, but it's also pulling him away from disbelief and disobedience that's spurned on by pessimism. It's pulling him away from the disobedience that leads to death. And it's pulling him towards life. The fear of the Lord, short definition, is standing in awe of him. It's seeing him as he is. The fear of the Lord is more than being terrified by something. Scariest movies I've ever watched in my life was The Strangers. Why did you do this? Because you were home. Freaked me out. All right. It's more than that. It's not like I'm scared into obedience. God doesn't shame us or scare us into the right way. That's the gospel. That's the cross. That God is saying, there's a profound life for you with unbelievable hope and possibilities. I'm not going to scare you into it. I'm going to love you into it. So it's, it's more than just this frightening disposition, knowing that there's a difference between me and God. It's also this tenderness. It's this carefulness, if you will. Like, like, if you've ever held a baby for the first time, you're a little bit more tender and careful with it. Like, if you have two or three kids, you know about, like, kid two, you're like, oh, you bumped your head into the counter? Ah, oh, you're durable. Shake it off. Did you die? Like, you know, you, you're a little bit more. But on that first time, there's, the, there's that tenderness. The fear of the Lord is the hybrid of terror and tender. It's all. I recognize that he is infinitely different than I am and in that different he's he's distant qualitatively different far off but he's tender I recognize that he's he's not distant but he comes close and he has a standard and a way and he pursues and I'm in awe and I embrace risk that God is who he says he is I'm not reckless 
but I'm risking that God isn't a liar. And that is the alternative that's offered. It's the beauty that we see in here. That later on, God steps in, stops this stoning from taking place, and then he pronounces judgment, displaying how holy he really is. But he doesn't do away with them. He produces mercy, displaying how compassionate and kind he really is. The collision of both. Grace in the midst, inviting us to dare to believe. I had a conversation with somebody this week that was super life-giving to me. She leads students and she was talking with one student who was battling the reality that they're going to graduate without really graduating and attention thereof. And in the midst of that conversation, she shared with them something that she ended up sharing with me and I wanted to share it with you. It was a reminder that I needed in that moment. She was like, I told them that where they were was hard and difficult, but that they should approach it with a tapestry mentality. That a tapestry has two sides. And on one side, it's like this cobweb of threads intertangled, looking like a jumbled mess. But on the other side is this beautiful picture. If pessimism rules us, all we'll see is the jumbled mess and the problems. But when the fear of the Lord takes root in our heart, wisdom is possible, courage is possible, hope is possible, which is the opposite of pessimism, not naivete, not being idealistic, not some weird version of optimism, but daring to hope in a better future, steadied by it. Hope alive in the heart steadies it. Oh, would we have that picture? It's possible, but it comes from seeing God as he is. It comes from interacting with life with that as the lens. God as he is, not as we would like him to be. The world as it is, but also as it could be if we submitted our dreams and our life to him. Would you pray with me? God, some of us, don't believe you for a thing, because it's easy. But what's easy often undermines what's enjoyable. So would you give us courage to take certain things off the shelf that pessimism put there and to lay them before your feet and interact with you as you are? through your text, through the picture of your son, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.